Welcome to this special episode of Buzzword Bingo, a podcast that explores the latest in enterprise tech through in-depth interviews with industry experts. My name is Mike Fall. I'm a database solutions engineer at Rubrik, and I specialize primarily in SQL Server and also being a former DBA 17 years, SQL Server and databases of uh, paramount interest to me. Today, we're going to be diving into the world of databases and protection best practices as we enter into the cloud era. Joining me is a group of experts and longtime friends who bring decades of database experience as well as being active contributors in the community. I'd like to start first off by introducing David Klee. David, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Hi, my name is David Klee. I am the founder and chief architect slash exorcist for Heraflux Technologies, a consulting company where we specialize in the convergence and how these different technologies play together between SQL Server, cloud, infrastructure, and different, you know, different infrastructure technologies. I'm lucky enough to be both a Microsoft Data Platform MVP and a VMware V expert. So we see a lot of different areas of the, the ecosystem around data. Excellent. Great to have you, Dave. John Morehouse is also joining us. John, would you mind saying a bit about yourself, please? Sure, you bet. Hi, my name is John Morehouse. I am a consultant with Denny Cherry and Associates Consulting. I'm based out of Louisville, Kentucky. I'm your jack of all trades, DBA, doing mostly operations, architecture, future planning, Azure migrations, as well as I specialize in automation and continuous delivery for databases. Awesome. Excellent to have you. So, yeah, no, it's great to have the both of you guys here. Obviously, I've been talking with you guys for many years, known through the community. And really, you know, it's, it's wonderful to have you here to leverage your expertise and knowledge in the database space for this conversation. I just want to start off by talking about kind of the current landscape of where databases are, where we've kind of been over the past few years and where we're starting to go. All three of us have been working with databases for a while. I started back in 99 with SQL 7.0. And really, since then, the technology applications, all this stuff has gone through tremendous change. So like, let's start with you, David. In your experience, what kind of changes have you seen and what sort of trends are you seeing evolve in the database space? That's a great lead-in question. Um, this this whole topic is actually how I name my company. You know that phrase, "the only constant is change." That is uh, coined by a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. So Heraflux Technologies. We live in a world of just constant, unexpected change. And since since I've been involved with SQL Server specifically since '98, uh, I have seen databases get exponentially more complicated. I've seen them get much larger. I've seen the database engine mature to something truly world-class. And I've honestly seen the exact same problems since day one just get bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that too, because like from my own personal perspective, you know, I, I always tell people about databases and obviously the tremendous amount of change, but at the same time, there's there's a lot of continuity and a lot of sameness to how things uh, have been in place, right? If you think back, like relational database theory was written by E.F. Cott back in the 1970s. And we, while we are adding all these new applications and platforms on top of it, there hasn't been a whole lot of, uh, or the, the underlying theory is the same. John, I don't know, what kind of thoughts do you have around this as well? Yeah, so I agree with David that you know the change is is exponential. I mean, I and I did not start working with databases until really about two thousand and five. So I don't have as many years of experience as uh, yourself or, or David. But what I've seen, at least from the past organizations I've worked for, is the amount of data that we collect and or store has grown exponentially. I remember when a hundred gig database was big. 
And that was unheard of. And nowadays we have, I'm sure that you and I, all three of us have clients that have multi-terabyte databases and we're starting to see, you know, petabyte size databases come into play and dealing with all that data always throws a wrench in the things and you always have to constantly be changing to find better ways to process all that. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, like I said, I mean, I'm trying to remember some of the stats and maybe you guys know this off the top of your head. I mean, the the, the predicted data volume of that we're going to have is, is literally what's, I think they said at some point here in the next few years, we're going to go into a zettabyte if we're not already there. And it's just a little staggering, you know, bringing out the whole the increased data volume and managing that data. And it's not even just on the relational side, right? It's also on the non-relational side. I, I mean, I don't know, David, have you had much experience with things that you've been looking at from the relational, I'm sorry, the non-relational side of things? Not as much as on the SQL Server side, but we are definitely going there with uh, some internal stuff that we're doing, largely with Cosmos DB. So document NoSQL style database uh, rather than the, the re- traditional relational model. I think that we probably all have a personal example of that, though. I'm just going to chime in real quick. I don't know about you guys, but I, if I look at my phone, and you know, I've got two young kids, and so I take pictures. So I happen to be looking at my phone recently, and at my phone, I have like 5,000, 6,000 pictures on my phone from five years ago. And, how, and some of the pictures are completely useless and don't relate to anything. But how do we manage all that and manage it effectively? Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I really think this kind of sets the table and gets us going here. Um, I'm going to turn back to David and let you kind of launch us into our next topic. You know, as we look at where things are evolving and how the the world is starting to kind of move more into the cloud as well, uh, you're going to see it. You see a lot of this like platform as a service offering or serverless architecture stuff, certainly up as, you know, look at the, the cloud offerings. What sort of impact has that had on day-to-day database life, and how is that impacting overall development of applications? It's really disrupted it for new, net new development. And I stress that from a traditional software perspective, not a lot has changed there because you've got you know, 10, 15, 20 years of bad software development practices that have to be undone before these other platforms are suitable. You know, things like cross-database calls eliminates single database in the cloud entries, the use of external devices, things like this. But for net new, you know, and we're, we're involved with this as well for a couple of internal things, it's phenomenal because it, it just dramatically shortens the life of any of these development processes. And a lot of the things that, you know, folks like us had to go manage for years, uh, instead of dealing with a complicated HADR setup that we have to go scramble to test periodically and watch out for and monitor and get woken up in the middle of the night. Now it's a checkbox. So the the architecture, the design, the impact of all these things is just tremendous if you're able to get there with your app. And it's to me, it's not a matter of if, it's when. When will the vendors actually catch up? You know, that's interesting, and I, I, I want to like kind of tag on that a little bit, because if we think about, you emphasize the net new, and one of the movements that we've seen over the past few years is this idea of lift and shift. So I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit, certainly from your consulting experience, where you've seen kind of the, the convergence or even the, the contention between the lift and shift and the building a, a cloud-native application. So many people are, are really interested in getting off of their on-prem environments. That's the, the bottom line. I see it everywhere. 
The challenge there is people are getting tripped up. Do they lift and shift, meaning go buy database servers out in the cloud, treat them as if they were on-prem, just out there, and then pick up their environment, drop it over there, or even stretch it in more of a hybrid role. I see a lot of this kind of stuff. What people want to do, though, is to start to leverage things like Azure SQL DB, serverless architectures, Azure Functions to go do a lot of this stuff. And that's where it actually requires retooling a lot of these. The lift and shift model means if you put your mind to it, you can lift pretty much anything, drop it over there, turn it on, and you're good to go. People want paradigm shifts for the the better with this stuff, but are they willing to either spend the time, the money, the energy, or have the will of the business to actually essentially from their perspective, reinvent the wheel, from the IT perspective, make things a whole lot better, but actually go forth and enact positive change there. It's 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 really a trade-up depending on the organization. Yeah, absolutely. You know, John, I actually, I know you at, uh, at Denny Cherry and Associates, you guys do a lot of work, particularly in Azure, in the Azure space. Have you seen similar sort of movements or similar sort of, had similar sort of experiences with your customer base as you're assisting people with either building in the cloud or moving into the cloud? At Denny Cherry, we do do a number of Azure migrations, either the lift and shift or we move to you know, databases as a platform and do those type of migrations. My cl- my individual client base that I work with from, you know, from Denny, none of my clients are in the cloud yet. I do have a couple of clients that have a pseudo cloud and not from a major cloud provider. It's really just some hardware and a data center somewhere close to them. And they, they usually view that as a cloud. I know that we we try to get, at least evaluate the, the clients to see if Azure or the cloud is a viable solution for them and see if we can actually save them money by moving to the cloud. Many organizations, at least in my experience, my past two employers were financial-based. They were really skittish of the cloud due to financial regulations from the federal government about data and data security. And so they were very hesitant to move to the cloud. Uh, and we'd really try to help resolve a lot of those fears and show them that, yeah, no, it's it's HIPAA compliant, it's SOX compliant, it's PCI compliant if you need it, and, and try to get those clients to look at those as a moving forward option uh, to help expand their technology footprint. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that helps us pivot into kind of the next topic that I wanted to talk about, right? And that's the idea of database security. Uh, And I think certainly, you know, we're all used to the on-premises vision, right? And and doing on-premises implementations, having the security set up. So I think, you know, kind of talking about that, and let's just focus right now on the on-premises side of things. Let's move out of the cloud for a moment. Like, what are the top security concerns for a DBA nowadays? It's breaches of the application and or environment to actually get to the raw data. It's either, either you know, in any number of forms, it's people getting to the raw data. That's the, the challenge. And, and preventing that. Right, absolutely. I don't know, David, do you have any experiences or additional thoughts on managing that data security as, or things that you may have seen with some of your customers or clients uh, with managing data security? The biggest thing to me, outside of what John already emphasized, is largely around auditing who has access to what. I find so many environments where everybody in the organization has inherited some weird group policy or some weird oversight with stacking of groups of users, and they've all got SA access, and they don't know it. And all it takes 
is somebody stumbling upon this and boom, they've got everything and they can walk out the front door with it. I find that a lot of the attack vectors actually come from inside the organization and not outside. Auditing and just strong auditing of who's got access to what least you know, least possible privileges at all times. Uh, it's one of those things that most organizations just either miss or set it up and don't revisit it periodically, and it should be audited around the clock. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's always, I think, the challenge is, is making sure that the people who should have access to the data have it and the people who should not uh, are denied it. Now, of course, I think one of the things or one of the risks there around that that exposure is the damage that can be done. I mean, obviously, there's the, hey, somebody came in and downloaded the customer list and walked out the front door with it. But then there's also the more malicious issues such as ransomware, right? Ransomware where somebody can come in and corrupt your, your files and, you know, hold your data for ransom. And so I think, you know, certainly as a former DBA myself, you know, one of the things that for me was like, okay, I can put all this stuff in place. But at the end of the day, if something terrible happens, I need I need a fallback. And that's always been my backups. So like what sort of best practices or thoughts that you do you guys have? And let's start with you, David, around setting up effective backup uh, strategies around a database and not only backup, but also recovery as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think about backups until I think about recovery. Um, backups are so many multifaceted because with a lot of the stuff that we do, there's the traditional backups, you know, full differential backups. There's log backups that have to be as frequent or more frequent than the business expects. There's the location of the backups. There's the encryption of the backups. There's at what frequency are the backups basically shipped off site somehow? Because if the building burns down or gets struck by lightning or floods or any number of things, how much data can the business lose? And then at what frequency are these things actually restored and tested and validated? And can you automate that? Can you programmatically do this in a way where it just runs all the time or you know, however quickly is necessary? And if something goes wrong, you just get an email. Uh, there's, and then... What happens when they take backups of the VM or physical machine? Is that impacting the SQL Server backup layer any? Are there good strategies for doing both of these at once? What does one do to the other? Sometimes they compete. Sometimes they complement. It's, it's a very, very multifaceted scenario, and it's always a different solution depending on the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, personally, I've always had kind of a view on, on backups I have basically three rules. I call them three rules of recovery, actually, because to your point, right, if the recovery is kind of the ultimate outcome and backups are just the way you get to it. But I've always said, first off, I have to have a backup. If I don't have a backup, then I don't really have anything to recover. Uh, the second, I need to have access to those backups. If I can't get at my backups, then, you know, again, it's kind of like I didn't take the backup at all. I mean, I don't have access to it to do the recovery. And then the third item is, can I actually restore that backup? Does it restore to a valid state? If I'm not able to accomplish those three goals, my backup strategy is kind of out the window. John, I don't know, do you have any, like, have a similar thought on that or, you know, similar best practices that you may have done around your backups in other uh, places? Sure, you bet. And I'm very much in line, and I don't know if you recall our, our former argument that you and I used to have about backups versus restores. Always always a fun chat. But I, I will echo David, and 
I try to automate my backups so I can validate that the backups are, are free of corruption and will actually restore to a healthy state that I know that I can recover to. I have implemented in the past of previous organizations various automation tools that would facilitate that and do it so on a you know a scheduled basis once a week or something like that, you know, restore a full, make sure it restores. So I know at least I can go back that far. We've all heard horror stories of people not having backups and then corruption occurs and their last backup was four or five years ago, which is always just a horror story. So if we can recover the database and make sure it's a healthy state, that's that's the nirvana. And we as DBAs or data professionals should really strive towards that. Like we talk about the testing and the automation and all that. But really at the end of the day, what it means to me or one of the best practices I always try to, to work on is practicing the restore. I mean, it's good to test it. You want to validate things. But at the end of the day, you need to be as a DBA able to actually walk through the restore process because one, it lets you know if there is a backup taken. Two, it lets you know that you can go to where that backup is and get it. And then three, you recover it and you know that you have a valid one. If you're not actually going through the process yourself and running and running those recoveries, it's hard for you to then when crunch time shows up, be able to do that when the pressure's on and that CTO is standing in your cube. I don't know, David, like, I'm guessing you probably do similar things, right? As you, you've worked in shops as well. My biggest thing is not just can you restore it, but if the stuff hits the fan and a CFO, CIO, CEO, whoever standing behind you, not to joke, but with a baseball bat, asking when is my business going to be back online, you need to not only be able to say it's coming back online, but you need to say, based on the last restore that we did a week ago, everything was good. This is how things are going. You'll be back up and running in 45 minutes. Uh, to be able to set the expectation that this is what's what it's going to take. This is how long we have the confidence to know that everything works and to stay cool, calm, and collected because it's just another drill. You know that these things are going to work. That to me is the strongest thing that you can do in your role. Yeah, I'm going to relate that back to something that for those who don't know, my secret shame is I have a music performance degree and I put quotes around that. But one thing I learned is doing that is there's this concept of practice how you perform and perform how you practice. So to your point about it's just another drill, the more you practice, the more that you can, when you go into that crunch time, right, you're, it's just another exercise. Yeah, moving along, let's actually kind of use that to, to pivot into kind of the next phase of things. And that's just talking about disaster recovery, because everything we're talking about here, recovering these backups, doing the recovery, doing the resource is all recovering from a disaster. Something's gone horribly wrong and we need to recover this. So, John, I don't know, like in your previous experience, what sort of techniques or practices would you go through to, to build out your disaster recovery plan? Well, so to me, the disaster recovery approach really encompasses all parties. So it's not just DBAs or data professionals. I can recover a database and bring it online. But that doesn't really help if the application servers can't fail over and come back online, then we're still dead in the water. So at least when I'm involved with a disaster recovery type strategy, we really need to talk about and talk to the people that touch all components of the infrastructure. Right. The, the business owners need to understand how their application is going to work. The infrastructure team needs to have networking, servers, phones, whatever critical components are deemed by the organization and make sure that they fail over just a lot, right along with the database. And or if I have to recover, you know, restore a database somewhere that everything comes online. To me, the big component is really testing that. I see a lot of organizations that say, oh, we have a DR plan. OK, 
have you ever tested it? Well, no, it's VR. Okay, well, I remember a conversation with somebody in the SQL family where their manager would randomly go through their 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 data center and start pulling drives out of servers. Seems a bit extreme, but that's really a good test to make sure that everything stays online and we can recover from any type of failure, whether it's a hole in the ground failure or power outage, or we got to fail over to our DR center several states away. Those are the, to me, that's a really key component is making sure that we can test it from end to end to make sure that the business has continuity in the case of a failure. Yeah. You know what, though? I want to drill into something that you kind of you said in passing there. You know, the, there's a communications aspect. And I know you're a big proponent of DevOps, much as like myself is. And I, one of the key tenets of DevOps is breaking down silos and having communications. And so could you maybe expand a little bit more on that communication piece and having not just the DBA talking to maybe the storage guy, but also talking to the application guys and such? Sure, you bet. And I think, and I agree with you. I think communication and breaking down those silos is really important. I think that where we all have that, that cloak, right? We're the DBA that sits in the corner in the dark corner with a cloak and all we do is say no. And really we as data professionals, and I think all silos really need to get out of that paradigm and really start talking to people. I've been in organizations where my infrastructure team was really surprised when I walked over and said, Hey, I'm having the same problem. This is what I think it is. I, we need to fix it. So I think communication is really important. It's probably one of the most important components that we should do as as DBAs to help facilitate moving our organiza- our respective organizations into the future and making things better. So I think that one thing that helps with that is if if IT professionals will talk to the business, the business can define some of those requirements. Uh, a good example is in a former organization that I worked at, we wanted a retention policy. We wanted to keep databases uh, backed up for X number of months on a monthly, you know, weekly, monthly, annual basis. And I was able to go to the management and say, okay, on average, here's the amount of total disk space that we consume for backups. If we do plan A, it's going to be this much. And on a rough number, $1,500 of slow storage uh, per terabyte on the SAN is X number of dollars. Then we can kind of extrapolate out what that's going to cost from a business perspective. And so I, in that aspect, or in that particular instance, I was able to allow the business to kind of drive that. And then the business made sure that all parties were on the same page. So when I did go to the storage admins and say, hey, look, we need more storage because we're not, we're not following what the business laid out for us or agreed to. And then the business just provides the funds to buy more storage. Right. So I think that's, I think that's communication, not across silos, but also up the chain to management. Yep. To me, that's the thing. Being able to take a technical challenge, translating it to a business need and back, that is critical because if you can do that, everybody else, any any one of these other IT silos, they can get on board with that. You know, that's interesting, David. I actually, I'd like you to maybe expand upon that a little more because I know certainly in your role as a consultant and the, the kind of work that you do, you speak to both the technical level and the executive level. So in a lot of ways, you have to bridge that gap. So how often or what kind of scenarios are you usually in where you're trying to be that liaison between the two sides? I'm in it from so many directions, it's not even funny. (laughs) There are a lot of different areas with this. Uh, Let's take people upset with Microsoft licensing. So business finance decision right there. We've got database licensing that is very, very expensive. 
So what do we need to do? We need to cut the operational footprint as much as we can while maintaining the SLAs and the, the different parameters set by the business, uptime, patching windows, things like that. So in our world, we take that now as a technical challenge. Do we need to think about SQL Server instance level consolidation? Do we need to think about VM consolidation? Do we need to think about right-sizing the VMs and getting greater VM consolidation? If we're in the cloud, can we right-size immediately and cut the operational costs down as soon as we hit go? What if they're buying uh, Enterprise Edition and they only need standard? Uh, What if they've got standard and they actually need enterprise to get their SLAs that the business requires? There's a lot of different areas like that where you, if you understand the technology well, but you understand how to speak to the business, you can put them side by side and really come to a technical solution that solves the business need, but you have to be able to convince the non-technical people that this solution is the right one. And it goes to cloud migrations, it goes to license decisions on-prem, it goes to you know bring your own license or not, it goes to virtual or colo or physical or cloud. You know, there's so many variables in there. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought up the cloud too and those kind of financial decisions because I'd like to, to move a little more back into the cloud conversation. Uh, I mean, I'm firmly of the belief that we're living in a hybrid world, and I think many folks out there recognize it. But there is a the D, the modern DBA, the modern database professional, needs to start to consider how the cloud handles and what changes in the cloud. And so, as we're talking about this, Dave, maybe you could speak a little bit more about uh, like things like high availability, da- disaster recovery, data protection. How does that transform as uh, a company's data and applications start to move up into that cloud area. Oh boy. The second you start throwing cloud in the mix, we'll start at the most basic level. Cloud as hybrid for either DR or offloading burstable workloads. If you can start this process, it's inexpensive. It means you don't have to maintain a second or a third data center to deal with DR and you're prepared. It's cheap, it works, it's solid, it's quick. And in the event that you actually have to recover something, now you need to figure out, well, what do I need to do? Do I pull all the data back on-prem and turn it on? Do I spin up VMs out in the cloud? Do I turn on cloud services and import the data? I don't know. Uh, It's a whole lot easier to do that, though, in my personal opinion, than it is to have to maintain another full data center worth of equipment just to basically spend a quarter million bucks on a space heater for 99.99% of the usage of that equipment. That's where I see people going first with this. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It is uh, an, an interesting thing where a lot of the cloud infrastructure offloads that. I mean, and that's actually one of the cool things is like I'll tell people about like, oh, if you go into use Azure or AWS, like a lot of companies spend a lot of time and a lot of money building out disaster recovery infrastructure. Whereas if I start spinning stuff up in the cloud, Microsoft and Amazon have already spent that money and I'm just leveraging the resources. So it really, it makes things a lot easier. There is a cost tied to it. And I think in some ways, the cloud, if not done appropriately, can be more expensive. John, I want kind of your feedback on this or your opinion, because I think one of the things that DBAs always want is they want control of their environment. They want control of what's going on. And when you go into the cloud, you tend to let go of some of that control. So what are some of the things that you've run into or maybe some conversations you've had with folks out there that are like, struggling with letting go of that control? Well, so a lot of those conversations, and I agree that we as, you know, I'm your, I'm your typical DBA. I like to say no, but I'll always give a reason why. 
don't want to let go of that control or the trust, right? We've, we've been in too many situations where things go wrong because we didn't have oversight or we didn't know about it or vice versa. I've experienced that a lot in doing like the DevOps continuous delivery type deployments. I've been fortunate enough to, to drive getting database lifecycle management into a couple of organizations, and that's always difficult. And at some point in time, we as DBAs need to let that go and that you do that by testing a lot. So when you run into those people that are, are not letting go of control, you have to get a process in place where we can test things from end to end and get them to a point where they are happy and can start to trust the process. And then our lives actually get easier. If I can get continuous delivery from a database perspective into place, I can be just about anywhere and have a deployment go through through an automation process and use the tools, whether that's continuous delivery or you know using the cloud services, then that's, that's so much better. One of the things about the cloud that I really like from a database perspective is the scalability. You know, if I'm using Azure DB, SQL DB, I can scale up the performance and scale it back down when I don't need it. You know, to touch base on David's point about having the communication with the C-level folks, that is a huge driving point, in my opinion, is that we can scale things up as we need it and scale it back down. I see a lot of organizations that are starting to use the cloud from a development standpoint. They can spin up a VM in the cloud, they can use it for what they want, and then shut it back down and save the money from an on-prem type footprint. Cool. Absolutely. Now, I want to turn it back a little bit more to protection. While we put stuff out in the cloud and we've talked about some of the, the previous considerations and thoughts around this, I think there's always still like, okay, well, how am I going to protect it? So, David, coming back to you with some of the conversations you've had, what sort of things are, are companies looking at for maybe like multi-cloud DR scenarios, like maybe pushing stuff back down from the cloud to on-premises? You know, what sort of like broader concerns do we have around a protection scenario or uh, disaster protection, disaster recovery situations? Well, to me, the broader picture of this is to not get tied into any single technology, be it a cloud provider, be it an on-prem solution. You know, I want the ability where if something happens, let's say, you know, there's another Amazon outage, I need to basically be able to scale this thing. If a zone in, in any of the cloud providers go out goes out, I need to make sure that my critical stuff is in another zone. And that I can just point a button, you know, a point and click, turn it on, and it's back up and running. And so my business is up and running. Same thing with on-prem. If I have local equipment that's going to fail, what's my backup strategy? Is it, you know, as simple as a database availability group? Is it redundant storage, you know, all the way up to multiple active data centers, uh, you know, if you really need to go there or do that in the cloud, maybe put some of your servers in Azure West, some in Azure Central, some in Azure East, you know, scale it out this way. And if you are really interested in truly cross-platform, put some on Amazon, put some on Azure, scale this thing out. And that way, if any one of these things have problems, essentially you get an email, but your business is up and running. Yeah. I mean, I, I find the kind of the multi-cloud thing very fascinating because at the the core of things, each cloud is is a vendor and they obviously want to they want you to use their cloud. They want you to use their resources and they make it very easy to get in and sometimes a little more challenging to get out. So it does add an additional component there, but it also I think is valuable because as you say, I don't want to necessarily depend on a specific technology because if I become too dependent on that technology, it could cause me problems down the road. 
And I don't know, John, like with your kind of similar experience, like, have you seen uh, any sort of multi-cloud stuff or what other sort of considerations do I have to have for data protection up in the cloud? I have not seen the multi-cloud thing. Um, I think at some point in time, you can go way overboard and have your VR, your HA solutions be way too complex. I do agree with David that you have to account for basically all points. And, you know, if I use Azure as an example, if I want to make sure that a particular zone, you know, east United States goes down, that I've got it somewhere else on the West Coast, then my, my business has that continuity. I think that's a very valid point, and we should all look at that. I haven't seen the multi-cloud thing. I don't think that is necessarily a bad solution at all. I think it's definitely worth looking into and making sure that you've got, you you have to account for all critical points of failure, whether that's down at the janitor level to make sure he doesn't unplug a, a rack somewhere, which we've all heard horror stories of that, all the way up to the cloud. And unfortunately, there's a flood in the East Coast and we lose an entire data center zone on the East Coast. How do we recover from that? You know, and look at all those critical points. I had this drilled into me a long time ago. Um, if anybody remembers Katrina, uh, we had to deal with some damage from a uh, just called in on the spur of the moment, just on, as an aside. The company's primary data center that uh, some friends of mine worked there, their CEO loved the water. Data center was in Miami. Katrina took it out. Not a massive problem for them. They had a second and third data center oh, no. in New Orleans. Oh, no. And Galveston, Texas. <laughs> So the first data center was not back up by the time Katrina took out the second and third at the same time. Well, you see, that's, and that's interesting too, right? Because again, kind of, you know, tying this back into the cloud conversation, right? When we're managing our own individual data centers, obviously these are things that we can concern ourselves about or that we would be thinking about. But when we go to a cloud provider, in a lot of ways, we're letting go of that control, right? When I say I'm going to spin it up in the uh, Amazon East Region 1, right? I don't know where their data centers are. I don't have any kind of, I mean, some people kind of, I think, have figured out where they are. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm basically turning over control to what's going on, where those are, where those are built. And there's a little bit of, uh, I think, a concern there of like, okay, I am letting go of that control, so from like, again, David, from maybe your perspective, has that been a major concern to people or are they pretty comfortable with just saying, okay, I, I rely on what Amazon has set up for their infrastructure? From what I've seen, most people are, are pretty comfortable with one platform until something big happens and they look at it after the fact. I don't know if you all remember, but the Verizon cloud had something happen a couple of years back and they had to reboot their cloud, all of it. And you didn't know when it would happen, and it would take a while for it to take effect, and there was nothing you could do. And if your entire platform was based there, you were stuck. And there were a lot of big websites that went down for that time span when they had these challenges. And that's a real problem. Uh, we've got a lot of businesses that are 24-7, and if things are not up within literally seconds businesses will start to fall apart. So it all depends on what is your level of business tolerance for this sort of thing. You know, if you're a nine to five shop Monday to Friday and you have a three minute outage, can business still happen on paper and be entered when everything's back up? Or, you know, are you down and that's it? You know, it, it all depends on what the business requirements are. And then if the business requirements are that strict where an entire failure of a single cloud is not a far-fetched scenario, what do you need to do to buffer it? 
that's a great point. And actually, I'm surprised that we haven't that none of us have brought these terms up yet. But really, again, it's a it's it ultimately comes down to what the business requirements are and how the business defines that recovery time objective and that recovery point objective, right? You know, so it, we can use all these new technologies and they're all great and whatever. But even tying back to what we said earlier, the more things change, the more they say the same, right? RTO and RPO is still king. And whatever technology we're using, we still need to know what those are and how we can accomplish them. John, would you agree with that? Any thoughts? I totally agree. I was actually going to make a comment. I think that raises two points again, back to communication, right? I've been in shops where I've, I've talked to both as a, as a full-time employee as well as a consultant. I've gone to powers that be or fellow DBAs and say, okay, tell me what your RPO and RTO are. And how are you accomplishing those those numbers, those figures? And I've run into data professionals that can't tell me that. That hasn't been documented. It hasn't been discussed with leadership or anything like that. Now, I've been fortunate. Some of my past employers, they had that in place when I got there, right? They've already defined we could be down for 24 hours. That was their RPO, RTO. And so we that was already defined. I also think that raises a question of what is the financial impact of being down? So that kind of ties in both communication as well as recoverability and whatnot. And what's your data worth? If you can be down for 15 minutes and lose 500 bucks, okay, you have a better idea. But putting an emphasis on the price of the data also helps drive that communication and ensuring that you find a solution that you minimize the financial risk from the business. Because, I mean, let's face it, we all like to get paid. I get paid because my employer makes money. That's pretty straightforward for pretty much all of us, right? So I want to be able to communicate that and say, look, if we're down for 24 hours, you're going to lose $10 million. So we have to fork over the money to find the right solution, whether that's a hybrid, it's on-prem, it's cloud, whatever it might be. And we as data professionals need to make sure that we find a solution that we can account for all those, all those KPIs and the solution will handle whatever we throw at it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's probably a good place to kind of wrap up. I mean, it's been a great conversation with the both of you. I really appreciate your time. And I think we've had a a lot of good uh, back and forth around all these different items. Though, John, admittedly, you and I didn't really get into an argument about backups versus restores, but whatever. (laughs) It was always a friendly conversation, and I I love those conversations. So it wasn't an argument, but it was. that's one of my my fondest memories of Single Saturday in Lincoln. And we were having that conversation, I don't know what, I don't know how many years ago. A a long time, a long time. A long time. Let's let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. I mean, anyway, to to kind of then wrap things up, I don't know, David, any closing thoughts from you on this conversation? Throw away the technology, get the business to establish a written and signed agreed upon recovery point objective, recovery time objective, and the SLAs around the different scenarios and you need to define the scenarios and then put the tech together to match the requirements, match or exceed. Because of that and only with those particular pieces defined, can you actually build a solution that will meet the business expectations? Bottom line. Great. Any closing words from you, John? Really appreciate your time again. Oh, you bet. No, this has been a great conversation. I love having these these types of conversations. I'm going to echo pretty much whatever thing David said. The other thing, the only thing I would probably add is once that document is defined, share it. Break down those silos and share it with all parties involved. It doesn't do any good if that documentation is 
in a binder on a shelf in the third floor storage room that only two people have keys to, right? So communicate that out and help break down those silos between all the parties that need to be involved with that. And let all the requirements dictate the platform. So on-prem, hybrid, and virtualized or physical, if you still want to go there, cloud, uh, you know, managed colo provider, whatever. You know, there are a lot of really good options out there. Let the best technology win. Don't try to force anything. Great. Well, again, appreciate your guys' time. Get great conversation. This has been Buzzword Bingo. Really uh, appreciate everybody listening in, and hopefully you gleaned a little bit of information. My name, again, has been Mike Fall, joined by David Klee and John Morehouse, and we hope you tune in next time for our next podcast.